prior to that, you know, we'd found like somebody, somebody's dad's beer or something, took a sip and it was disgusting, you know. So I'd had drinks before, but something happened this time when I took a drink. And in the recovery world, you'll hear people say I had an, an aha moment, you know, an ah moment, as we call it sometimes. I took a drink of that, that Ghibli's gin and my throat got hot, my stomach got hot and something changed in me. People who aren't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic. People who aren't an alcoholic may not understand what I'm getting ready to say, but I had a moment. I felt a little taller, a little cooler. All the puzzle pieces fit when that hit my system. And I believe that that's what differentiates somebody from being alcoholic and non-alcoholic. Somebody can just be a heavy drinker and a problem drinker. But if they don't have that, that moment that I just stated right there, you may not be an alcoholic. Not that you couldn't be down the road. But for me, my opinion, that that moment has to be there. The Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Thank you for checking into this edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. For this episode, we bring you the one and only Joe Burrow. Joe is a fantastic guitarist and songwriter for the St. Louis area band Divide the Empire. He is a compelling storyteller, as you will find out soon, and he rocks an Elvis costume like nobody's business. During this episode, you will hear us discuss the origins of Divide the Empire and what they are up to nowadays, Joe's roots and struggles with addictions, and all the chaos that ensued as a result of his former lifestyle, how he became the man that he is today because of those hard-learned lessons and the support system that helped him through the darkness, and much more. Be sure to follow Divide the Empire on the socials, download their music where all great music can be downloaded, and if you ever have the opportunity to see them live, you must do it. So, without further introduction, here we go. Hey everybody, welcome back to yet another riveting edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. I am James, and with me, as always, is my good friend Colt. You know it. And with us on the line today, we have Mr. Joe Burrell. How you doing today, Joe? Doing good. Good morning, guys. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. And so... I have to mention the llama cup now. Uh, your coffee cup is a llama playing guitar. That's yes. that's fantastic. Is there any kind of backstory you can give us to the llama coffee cup? Uh, no. Okay, <laughs> perfect. That's, that's the way. I- <laughs> no, my uh, my girlfriend's daughter has a thing for llamas, so any gift she gives me has a llama on it. So I like the theme. My- that's awesome. Gabriella. Gabriella, I love it. So you big coffee drinker. Uh, I can be in the winter more so. I'm yeah. an energy drink junkie though. Yeah. What kind of energy drinks do you prefer? I just, <laughs> I just moved up to the heroin of ener- energy drinks. I'm on the bangs now. Oh, oh. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Where so. did you upgrade from? Monster. White monster. monster. Okay. I gotcha. White monster. I prefer White the monster. rockstar myself. I'm a rockstar guy. Uh, I'm huge, huge oh. drinker of coffee, but the, the rock stars, I don't know. I mean, there's something about the, I don't know the taste. It's a, it's a twang. It's something that just it bites me. It, I love it. So if you're a coffee guy, what's your Starbucks? You walk in. What do you tell them? What I, do you tell them? Well, I don't really do Starbucks that often. I mostly just brew my own. Uh, uh, good. Yeah. Well, down here we don't have Starbucks. We're about an hour south of St. Louis, where we uh-huh. where we stay, and we don't have Starbucks around here, around these parts. Yeah, <laughs> we have to go all the way to. We have to go all the way to. I don't. At least probably South County, maybe to get a Starbucks. Coffee Shack or something. We have a, we have a couple of places. They're uh, they're not franchised. They're, they would be unknown to you. 
But uh, yeah, we just have a couple of little places. But I'm trying to think of the last time I went to Starbucks. It's probably been months and months ago, and I can't even remember what I get. I think it's probably it's something because I like my coffee black. I like it as black as the night itself, right? So, but when I go into Starbucks, I get something a little bit, uh, you know, fruitier or whatever. I don't know. Just it's a little bit. It, it's little, it, little cream on top. There, of it. there you go. Yeah, it's a little fluffy. I like that term right there, fluffy. And. <laughs> fluffy. Uh, but typically, I don't do my coffee fluffy. Um, so anyway, yeah, just just black. I like the the darker the better of the coffee. Um, I don't like to I don't like to compromise it with anything of the sugar or creamer nature. Um, I just I've, I've grown as a person. I've matured as a coffee drinker into just straight uh, drinking coffee for the sake of the coffee itself. And now you just like it disgusting. It makes sense. It's okay. Yeah. It's, it's an acquired taste, right? <laughs> Wait, are you a, fluff, a fluffy coffee drinker? I don't drink coffee much. I'm actually drinking coffee now with some flavored creamer in it, but uh, I rarely ever drink coffee. If it's in, if I'm getting any energy, it's going to be from an energy drink normally. Which one's yours? What's your energy drink? It doesn't really matter. Actually, <clears throat> have you had the the Rain yet? Monster's yeah. new version? That's probably my go-to now if I'm going to drink one. I got to I got to be careful. I got to space those out though, man. That's really? Too much caffeine hit my system at once, man. Well, it's got the, I think it's got the same amount of caffeine as a Bang does. I know. Oh, okay. I gotcha. <laughs> so just in general. <laughs> I'm easing into the world of bangs, man. I gotcha. That's all, that's all I need another rehab, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, I know you're coming off of Big Show last night, and, and Colt was at it early this morning posting pictures of uh, you all in your <laughs> outfits. So yeah. I, I got to know, and for people who haven't seen it yet, go to the, the socials and check out Divide the Empire and their their awesomely crazy outfits uh, but what drove the uh what drove the idea behind having the elvis costume there well the genesis of it is uh we get a kick we've done so many shows we get a kick out of everybody trying to be rock star you got the affliction shirts the bandanas the chains the all that you know it's it's you gotta you gotta have your stage clothes you know and uh we've always been we 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 go out of our way to not sound like anybody or look like anybody. We're not the pretty boys. We're not going to be on the, you know, we're old, ugly, and chubby, you know, to be quite <laughs> honest. So we were actually going to do it for the ink spot. We were going to do something for ink spot, and then we chickened out at the last minute because we had so many family and friends coming in. Um, we were actually going to do Super Dave Osborne or Evil Knievel outfits for that one, and then we backed out. So we promised the keyboard player was just tore up. He was like, come on, man. We, we said we were going to do this, and he was really <laughs> stoked about it. So we said, okay, we got this Out Amongst the Masses show coming up. We'll do it for that one. We guarantee you. So we went looking, and the Evil Knievel outfits start at like 50 bucks a pop. We got five members in the band, you know? And uh, I said, let me let me see what I can find. So I went online, and I found uh, the Elvis outfits for 20 bucks a pop. I said, wow. okay, let's do it. Let's do it. And then Randy went, he got the gold jacket with the wig and everything. And we said, there's a video of us coming on. We had a two minute, uh, like big choral intro. We worked it all out and everything. We sound checked and then we ran off stage and went back and changed. And they had this big music booming and all this stuff. Dun, 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 dun. And then here we came, we came out and just kicked right into our set and had so much fun, you know? I mean, we kind of felt sorry for anybody that had to follow us after that, you know, but uh, <laughs> it was so much fun, man. There was, there was camel toes and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> It was pretty disgusting. It was fun. Well, one question I was going to ask was if you guys actually had those suits on retainer already or if you actually had to go out and buy them. So it actually makes me feel a little better that you actually had to go to buy them. They weren't just in your closet already. Well, actually, there's a whole lot of role play that goes on behind the scenes. Oh, well, no. okay. 
I Good. feel like the podcast just took a turn. Uh, yeah, we let's uh, let's get into that. Go down that rabbit hole for a while. <laughs> no, but now you do have them on retainer, and, and so now that you all have the outfits, who knows when Elvis might pop back up on stage for a Divide the Empire show? Well, the funny the funniest thing about the whole process was I went to order them, and everybody gave me their size. And I go to order them, and they go one size only, one size fits all. And I'm going, we are not a one size fits all. <laughs> this is going to be weird. <laughs> So watching when we finally got them in uh, rehearsals last week, we all we said, well, okay, we've got two minutes to get sound checked off stage, back on stage with our costumes on. So we had to time trying to get these things on and off, you know, because we really wanted this the big surprise. And watching people pack into these things that should not be in one size only, <laughs> just, it made for so much laughter. It, it was hilarious. It was really good. Like I said, a lot of camel toe going on. A lot. <laughs> Yeah. The other question I have is, have you thought about changing the band name to Old Ugly and Chubby? Uh, well, it's in the works. We actually talked about Satchel of Richards, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's genius. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> you all, Divide the Empire, you've been together, I guess, since, or at least started to be put together since around 08. Is that right? Uh, the the genesis of it was 08 and it actually started in it the bullet points i sent you guys uh when i when i got into recovery uh i picked up the guitar again i i put it down for years basically i pawned every guitar i ever had you know and uh i picked a guitar back up again and a buddy of mine one of my best friends i grew up with we just started going in a room and i said i just want to start writing music i don't know how to do it but let's just start doing it and so in 08, we started, we'd get together every Saturday night and we'd start and we'd just say, okay, I play this, you play this. And we started learning how to write songs and we got a little four track recorder. And then that's what started in 08. And we just kept doing it every Saturday night. Then a friend of ours, he said, you know what? I'm a guitar player, but you guys need a drummer. I'm gonna go buy a drum set. So he went and bought a drum set and he could keep a beat. So we started from there and then we moved into a storage unit. And we had, I think, I believe we had four songs, solid songs that we felt were solid. So we put an ad in Craigslist for a singer. And uh, so we had drums, bass, and me on guitar. And uh, everybody on in St. Louis metro area that anybody had ever told them they're a good karaoke singer got a hold of us <laughs> at one. You know? And uh, we put some, we kind of put some things in place in the uh response to the ads like okay we want to see hear your lyric content we want to hear samples of your voice and all this stuff and uh you'd be surprised how many people just didn't, really didn't want to do that they just wanted to come jam you know and which is cool but that's not we didn't want to waste our time really right and we got garbage for responses just nothing and so we gave up on it we just said all right we're going to go back and start writing songs and uh it'll happen if it's supposed to and then out of the blue, Randy Shanks got a hold of us and said, hey, I saw your old ad and uh, yeah, I'd like to see what you guys got. So there's a song, 740, which is the first complete song Divide the Empire ever did. And it's named 740 because the storage unit we were practicing in was 740. And uh, so we sent him 740. And two days later, he sent it back complete. What you hear on the record, it isn't the same version, but it is lyrically what he does melodically everything that is that song that he sent back two days later wow. and we're like you're in so he came came to our little storage unit 
And the first night, uh, we, we played 740. Obviously, we played through that a few times. We showed him the new ideas we had. And then uh, I just started just noodling around. And I, I hit this riff, and he goes, keep doing that. And then we wrote our first song that first night, and we've been going ever since. And that was in – Randy and I, we talked – I believe it was right before Christmas in 2010, I believe. And January of 2011 is when he came to that first practice. And we've been practicing every Friday night since then. Wow. Yeah. What's, what's your recipe for staying together for so long? Cause you know, we would talk to a lot of musicians, a lot of bands, artists, and you've got so many, especially in a band, you've got so many personalities, right? You, you guys have five personalities that have to come together and converge in a storage unit to start out. Right. And so yeah. you all converge on one spot and you, and you have to take these creative ideas, these forces that are within each and every one of you and, and merge them together and try to make the magic. Right. You, you all have a particular kind of recipe or, or just, you know, what's your philosophy behind, you know, staying together? We often ask ourselves that. Why, why, why are we still together? And I mean, a lot of the bands we started playing with are no longer together. You know what I mean? And that changes from year to year. We see it a lot. I don't know if you'd call it a recipe. Friday nights are, well, up until recently, I had a shift change at work. So now we're off Fridays, but we're moving it to Saturdays, Saturday mornings. But for eight years, Friday night is Divide the Empire. That comes first. That's, we set that. If you can't do that, that's cool. We appreciate it, whatever. But this is what we're doing on Friday nights from, you know, and uh, because two of the members, well, now three of the members are on, live in Illinois. I live in Moscow Mills in Missouri, complete other side of the river. Steven, our keyboard player, he lives in Troy, Missouri. So we go and meet in the middle. We, we rehearse in our city. And uh, so it's there that that part of the commitment. We start there. Just be consistent. Be there. If you can't be there, let us know. We'll work around it. Behind the scenes, we ha we had we started out with an understanding in the band that number one, there wasn't going to be any fights over material so much um, because we're not trying to fit into a genre and we're not trying to do anything. It's real organic. Our process is real organic. If it sounds good to us, we're going with it right. because it's their reason. You know, um, if it's quiet and mellow song. We don't care. We're not trying to be heavy metal, you know, or whatever. We we were heavier in the beginning. That's because of some of the members. But we just, we go to, we take extra steps. I'll put it that way. We take extra steps to make sure that there's no argument later. Right. Like, uh, if you look at our records, <laughs> our last, well, the record that's, that'll be coming out next year will be volume three. But we said three winters, volume one, two, and three. Why? Cool concept but mainly because we got tired of fighting over what the name of the record is going to be. So uh, we're going to do three records of seven songs, volume one, two, and three, three winners. Why three winners? We came up with that idea on our third winter of practicing. There you go. That's nice. So, so we don't have to argue about that anymore. Right. Because the, the arguments that took place over naming the band just exhausted us all. We're like, this is, this is crazy because it was just silly. Some of the ideas that came up and, uh, I'm, I had the silliest probably, but we just, we take extra steps on the front side so that we don't have to argue later. You know, there's just certain understandings in the band, you know, um, Randy's the star, baby, you know, I mean, he's the star and that's just what it is. His voice is golden, you know, and we have no delusions about that, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and he understands I'm, I do, I do a lot of the, 
the paper shuffling and the and the booking and the and the um, I do all the graphic design for the band. You know, everybody has their role. You know, and everybody accepts that role. Now there has been lineup change. You know, our our bass player, my buddy, uh, my best friend, he stepped down uh, two years ago, I believe. Family obligations, grandkids and stuff, and he just wanted to do something else on his Friday nights and stuff. And we miss him. We love him. You know, no hard feelings. And uh, he stepped down. The the original drummer from the storage unit, he moved on. He had job things go on. So Randy had Keith, who's been our drummer since then, brought him in. He's a idiot savant. He's a savant. I won't call him an idiot, but <laughs> he's, he's a savant. He's you know, he's just amazing. He, the things he does without even thinking of it is amazing. You know. Um, yeah, so there's been lineup. I, I re- try to put it in one sentence what the recipe is. We just try to be consistent and we try to be honest and none of us are drunks or junkies. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't add that fuel to the fire. I don't, I personally, I don't drink or get high or do anything. You know, guys in the band have some drinks, you know, but it's, it's not a problem. You know, we don't get together. When we get together, we get together to the work. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like what what you've done in essence is just simplified the process. And I think that that shows a lot of wisdom, you know, coming in and saying, okay, we're not going to fight over this. So let's just get this out of the way right now. Use the yeah. same title for the next three albums, you know, and just yeah. go with that just so we can get that out of the way. You know, it's yeah. kind of like, it's kind of like picking out your your outfit before the the night before, so you don't have to get up and worry about it the next day, right? Because it's just going to slow you down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and when we first did it, when people first saw Volume One, they're like, "Well, isn't that pretentious? I mean, you guys can't even get any airplay, you know?" And you're Volume One. What's next? Greatest hits, you know? <laughs> right. We we knew what we were doing and why we were doing it, so that's all that mattered, and that's. That's our main thing. We don't let anything, we don't compare ourselves to anybody else. You, If you're having success, that's great. We're, we'll back you, whatever, you know. We ain't going to dog anybody. If something goes bad in the show, promoter goes bad, we just don't work with people anymore. We don't get out and badmouth people. We just want to do our thing. That's all we want to do, write music and enjoy our families. That's all we want to do. Yeah, I, I hope that whether it's on like this show right now or just when you're talking to you yourselves and, and your bandmates are talking to younger people, people that are just starting out in, in the music industry that they can gain from that wisdom. Because I think that probably a lot of bands burn out uh, pretty quickly just because of the infighting, just because of the disagreements on something like a, a band name or the album title or, or this or that. Another thing that you mentioned, Joe, that I, a lot of wisdom uh, that I find in is just uh, showing up, basically. You know, and it seems so simple, right? Show up for practice consistently. Every Friday is our time. And if you don't want to do it, you know, we're not going to come to your house and, you know, drag you out. But let us know because this is this is our serious. This is what we're doing. We're going to be consistent with it. Showing up mm-hmm. is how much of the battle. It's a lot, right? It's, it's a lot. Well, show up. Not just show up, but show up. You practice at home and we rehearse together. Sure. You know, know your parts when you come, you know. And, and that's not to say that, I mean, we are, we usually show up at rehearsal at 6 p.m. on Friday night, and we're usually leaving, pulling out about 2 in the morning, you know, 1 or 2 in the morning. Um, and I'd say a third of that is actually playing, you know. It's also, there's a lot of fellowship and, you know, camaraderie that goes wrong. We hang around, talk about our week, and, you know, and <laughs> listen to crazy music and, and just hang out, you know. And uh, we're brothers. We really are. Really yeah. are. It's a cool thing to be a part of. So is there any kind of ultimate goal with the band in general, or is it just we're doing it because this is fun and these lo- you know, love doing these local shows with these other bands and the camaraderie and stuff, or is 
are you trying to really do something with the band? That's double that's double edged. Number one, we do it because we really love doing it. Um, I know I can. I definitely know I can speak for Randy and I can speak for myself that there's certain demons that need to be exercised, just from life in general, and, and people need to have an outlet, and that that's our outlet. So on 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 one front, we do it for us, <laughs> you know. I, if I'm not doing something creative, I'm a graphic designer, which I, I don't do it for a living, but I'm, I went to school for it, but I got to have that, you know, I got to be doing something creative at all times and I never finish anything. So that's why the band helps me. I get to finish something. <laughs> I'm a great, I'm a great, I'm great out of the gate. I start stuff great, but, uh, but anyway, I digress. Yeah. I don't even know. We just, the consistency thing and yeah, I, I, I don't even know. It's, it's hard to explain sometimes how these things, how it comes together for us. I, I just don't know the no end game really, but we know we're going to, we're riding this till it dies. Right. We're going to absolutely ride it to the die. Just like I said, with the type of music we write, we put no limits on it, you know, right out of the gate. We don't say, okay, we want to do this. or We want to do that. We have things that we would, we know that we would like to see our music do the goal for me. I remember sitting in my room as a kid and listening to music, and it did something to me. It did something to me that maybe it didn't do to people around me. But when I was, I was heartbroken. I had songs I listened to. When I was when I was getting ready to go party, I had songs I listened to. It it affected me deeply. And I'd watch movies or videos of people performing and people singing their songs back to them. And I was like, I want that. I want people. I want to do to give to somebody else what they gave to me. And I know Randy's the same way that interaction, you know, to see somebody deeply moved by something that you created out of thin air, right? You know, that's what we're doing. We're taking something out of thin air. Okay. Make something. And then it affects people deeply, man. That's, that's magic. It's just straight magic, you know? And that's all we want to, we just want, Randy always says, I want to leave my plastic imprint on this world. You know, when I'm gone, I want people to have something to go, wow, you know, that guy, he did something. You know, and uh, that's that's it. You know, where it goes, like I said, we're going to ride it till it stops. The only goal is to remain consistent, uh, be solid, get better every time we write a song, learn something from the last song or the last time in the studio, you know, and just keep growing and keep being honest with each other. You know, I I, I may make it sound like <laughs> there is no infighting that happens you know we, we have some knockdown drag outs you know but that's between us we keep it between us that's our business and it's nobody else's it's like a family you know when we step out there all you guys see is a, a united front you know and and we we are right you know? yeah back do you have any bands that you could name drop you said a lot of that music back then would uh, really affected you do you have any like bands that you could necessarily mm-hmm. name that might ha- uh have put those lyrics into you uh, I'm not the lyricist, so okay. um, I, I'm 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 a riff guy. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, my mom was a huge garage sailor as a kid. We were on a budget. I'll put it that way. And uh, she would bring me home records. And one of the first records she brought home to me was "Let There Be Rock" by ACDC. I mean, it's riffs, man. Right. You know, a whole lot of Rosie, "Let There Be Rock." I mean, I can remember putting it on my record player and going, "What is this? <laughs> this." amazing you know and you know it's probably first time i picked up a tennis racket and started acting like i was playing (laughs) um yeah so i you know growing i 
my neighborhood that I grew up in, I ran around with a lot of the older guys. Um, I was always the little punk kid, you know, tagging along. And uh, what what you would hear, you'd hear fog hat blaring out of the windows, uh, ACDC, Rush, uh, you know, the usuals, ZZ Top, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. That was there, you know, that that's what I heard, you know. And then I'd go home and uh, my dad, his record collection was Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett. Uh, Mom was Waylon and Willie, you know, so just so many different influences in my home. Then high school years, I I, I heard Bitchin' Camaro by the Dead Milkmen. Uh, you guys familiar with that song? I have no idea. Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. I heard that song. Somebody played that song and what it did it to me again. I said, what the hell was that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did I just hear? I need to hear that again. And then I, w- I went down the whole punk, punk road. Got into uh, bands like DRI, Misfits, Black heavy into Black Flag. Mm-hmm. It was that's where I was at. I had that aggression, and I like to get out there and just get beat up and beat other people up and have fun doing it. You know, so so yeah. I mean, just so many things moved me. It moved me on different levels. It wasn't necessarily just sitting in my bedroom crying. You know, if I needed to go out and get in a fight or whatever. You know? <laughs> right. Just a night train by you know uh, Guns and Roses or something. Uh-huh. You know? Very nice. Yeah, more more uh, times than just once, Joe. So far, you've you've kind of alluded to the therapeutic aspect of music, and mm-hmm. often I often tell people that I work with that music is it's a tool, and you can use music for a lot of different purposes, you know, yeah. and, and you can actually manipulate your mood, not just accidentally, you know, if you're feeling a certain way and you want to shift that mood to something else, like you're saying, it, it's not just about if you need to feel sad and get, and get a cry out, but you might want to go out and fight. And there's some, there's some music that, that you have in your repertoire that's going to help you to do that. It's going to get the adrenaline pumping. It's going to, you know, it's going to anger the blood, if you will. And, uh, of course, nowadays, I don't... Cool music that he posts every morning. Yeah, you're right. There that, you that's go. what I was getting to. The, <laughs> nowadays, I don't, you know, I don't fight except with maybe my wife sometimes, <laughs> and she always beats me up. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, for workout though, I've got, I've got, you know, my, my workout playlist that I have that's when I go in the gym, it, it, I almost jump out of my skin sometimes because uh-huh. I get, I get the, you know, the endorphins going, the adrenaline's pumping and I just, I turn on that music and I just want to literally jump out of my skin. I get so pumped up and I've got to be careful with that song because I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And so if I get myself <laughs> too pumped up, I'm going to get injured. I'm going to get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, music music is a tool, but it also has a therapeutic aspect to it. Absolutely. I love how you talk about just as, as the band, you know, the process. You you almost don't even know how to encapsulate it because it's yeah. just it's something that you're. It, it, there's a gravity to it, and it draws you and and the other guys and a lot of people. But it draws you to keep coming back day after day, year after year, to keep making music. And that's yeah. that's bound to come out in your art, right? That that's bound to come out. That passion is bound to come out when you're actually playing up there on stage. The way that you present yourself, the way that you love the music, is going to be a force behind you when you're up there. And I, I definitely see that with Divide the Empire. You guys are great. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. that. Really. And so, kind of passively, you you mentioned in '08 when you started piecing this whole thing together, recovery. And so I, you've got a great story. One of the things I love about following Joe on social media is that I know I'm going to get positive, positive messages. I, I'm going to get a lot of uh, inspiration. 
and uh, I can see that you're on a certain path, a certain a certain kind of path, I should say, not not a particular specific path, but I, I, I can kind of grasp where you're at in life based yeah. on uh, how you present yourself to the world nowadays. So I, if you don't mind, I'd like to start way back in the day, as far back as you'd like to go, and kind of talk about who Joe Burrow is. You know, what? Who are you? How did you become the, the man that you are today? And and because I know you've been through some things. You know, you've been through some some hardships, some trials, and I just like, I put myself through those things. Well, <laughs> well, probably some of them. You know, a lot of them. Like like I know I have as well. But uh, life also hands us some things that we don't have any control over. You know, True. and and so our much of our life is in response to those things. It, it, it's in response to the hand that we're dealt, and uh, of course, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, that causes me to be a little more empathetic to people uh, when when I look at people and I think, man, what a jerk, or man, this guy is just a waste of skin. Sometimes, nobody in particular, by the way, just that when I'm when I'm looking at someone, I, and I <laughs> I'm looking at somebody and I see that I'm like, man. But then I kind of I, I put myself I, one one perspective that I've heard is to remember that person as a child. That person was a kid at one time. They were an innocent kid who was dealt a hand, and their personality and their behavior is a response to what they were given. And so, kind of off the track, off tracks a little bit there. But uh, if you could just kind of take us back and tell us about who who you are and how you got to where you where you are today. Wow, that's broad. That's a broad stroke. Well, uh, my family moved to O'Fallon, Missouri, off Highway K in 19, October of 1976. We moved from North St. Louis. I was in kindergarten in North St. Louis, and when we left, I'd get off a half day of school and have to run home because I was getting beat up by the other kids all the way home. My mom, it just tear her apart. And so we moved to Old Fallon and I came with, that's not going to happen to me here, you know? Um, and you got to paint the picture. I bright blue eyes and cotton white hair, bowl haircut, little kid. I was, I was, I was five, six, no six. Yeah. And, uh, moved to this new neighborhood. My dad pulls the bike off the moving truck and he says go make some friends so i hopped on my little bike with the sissy bars and stuff you know and went riding around the neighborhood and kids started coming out to see who this kid was and i was like i got scared i was like oh my god what you know here we go again this is gonna happen again so it popped into my head that i remember my dad used to watch westerns while we ate supper and uh i remember the baddest dudes around were apache indians Everybody was always afraid of the Apaches. So I said, I'm going to tell these guys I'm half Apache. <laughs> so white hair, blue eyes. I told these kids, they were, you know, asking where I was from and who I, who I was. And I let it, I told them at six years old that I was half Apache Indian. So they better not mess with me, you know? And so I was the coolest kid around. I'm sure until they went home and their parents were like, that kid ain't got no Indian. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, I don't know why I told that story, but yeah, I just when I when I when I share my story, I always begin with the fact that my earliest memories, I I I never I felt like I never fit in. I mean, as a small small child, something was wrong with me. Everybody else had the manual, had the handbook. I didn't get the memo. I had no clue what what I was doing. I, I just carried that with me, and I don't I don't I know now where it came from, but then I just I was clueless. I felt like. I, something was wrong and broken with me. So yeah, I grew up in this neighborhood out off Highway K. The, there was kids all up and down the street, you know, that uh, we all we wanted to do was just run and play and hang out, you know. And as we got older, 
you know, playing hide and seek wasn't so fun anymore, you know, and we wanted to do something else. We started getting mischievous and the older guys were drinking and getting high. And, uh, there was a guy up the, up, lived up the street that everybody, all my friends, we all looked up to. He had a 1972 Chevelle with big wide tires on the back, you know, it was orange with racing stripes. And he'd always run up and down the street and he'd had a pretty girl by his side, cigarette hanging out of his lip, a beer between his legs, fog hats blaring out the window. And I was like, I want what that guy's got. I want everything. He is so cool. I want that so bad. And uh, one morning I got up. Uh, nobody else was out with. That's kind of how it went in the, na- in the neighborhood. You, If you were up first, you just kind of went out and kicked rocks around on the street. And slowly all the kids would start coming out. And then we'd go build a fort or do something, you know. And this one morning no kids were out. So I just started walking up the street. Mr. Chevelle was sitting on his porch in a lawn chair. And he had these bottles all around him. You know, you're sitting there drinking, you know, 839 in the morning, you know, I went, I was like, okay, now's my chance to get to meet this guy. So I went up and uh, I started talking to him and he asked me if I wanted to drink and he handed me a bottle. And I I think it was Ghibli's gin of all things. And, uh, I didn't ask questions and I, you know, I did prior to that, you know, we'd found like somebody, somebody's dad's beer or something, took a sip and it was disgusting, you know? So I'd had drinks before, but something happened this time when I took a drink. And in the recovery world, you'll hear people say, I had an, an, an aha moment, you know, an ah moment, as we call it sometimes. I took a drink of that, that Ghibli's gin, and my throat got hot, my stomach got hot, and something changed in me. People who aren't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic. People who aren't an alcoholic may not understand what I'm getting ready to say, but I had a moment. I felt a little taller, a little cooler. All the puzzle pieces fit when that hit my system. And I believe that that's what differentiates somebody from being alcoholic and non-alcoholic. Somebody can just be a heavy drinker and a problem drinker. But if they don't have that, that moment that I just stated right there, you may not be an alcoholic. Not that you couldn't be down the road, but for me, my opinion that that moment has to be there. So I, I drank that, that gin. I don't remember much after that. I remember it at my house. Supper was at five 30. No ifs, ands or buts. If you're not home, they come looking for you. That's the way it was. My old man would definitely come looking for me. And, uh, you know, I, I woke up out of a blackout laying in a patch of poison Ivy with all my buddies standing around me, laughing at me, kicking dirt on me. And, uh, I got up, dusted myself off, said, well, that was cool. That felt (laughs) great. And I went home, had supper, and nobody knew, you know, and I was like, wow, I think I found the answer for Joe. Because for that brief moment, all the pieces aligned. I felt like I didn't feel like I was less than anymore for that little bitty moment. And uh, so I chased that all the way through high school. Um, That's what we did. You know, that's all us kids. We uh, lunch money milk money, allowance money. We all saved that up. All of us as a group, because we all kind of discovered it at the same time, really. And uh, we'd go take it to Mr. Chevelle and uh, we'd say, please go get us some beer. Because he was, Mr. Chevelle, he wasn't 21, but he, he was that guy that at, at 18 had the full beard and he <laughs> looked like a gorilla. So he could go buy booze anywhere, especially, you know, um, in the in the 70s and 80s, you know. And uh so we'd give him all our lunch money and stuff. And sometimes he'd come back with booze for us. Usually he'd come back <laughs> drunk and say, oh, you know, I don't know what happened, you know. But uh, but he, we'd tell him get the cheapest stuff you could so we could get as much as you could. Right. And there used to be 
There used to be a beer called Old Missouri. It was a white can, had the state of Missouri on it with a mule, and it was $3 a case. Not $3 a 12-pack, $3 a case. And it was 5%. So, you know, we give him 20 bucks. You know, you got five, six guys and a couple girls. We were getting smashed. <laughs> and uh, and that's what that's what we did. That was our fun. We could not wait to get to the weekends to do that. You know, because back then it, it wasn't like it is now. And I'm sure you guys can relate. I mean, growing up, my mom, after you got up and got your clothes on and she might sling you some breakfast, it's get out of here. Go. Come back later. You right. know, well, I don't want to see you, you know. And so we had woods behind our house. It was, you know, I, I grew up on Highway K and uh, everywhere you see a shopping center used to be a field that we used to party in. I mean, I cannot look at a field and drive down Highway K without looking at a, a shopping center and go, yep. <laughs> yep. We broke into that house. Yep. We did this. I mean, we were just hooligans, you know, that's, that's just what we were, you know. And uh, yeah, so that's we partied like that. Hit high school. By the time I hit high school, I mean, I was, I was smashed. It wasn't a weekend thing anymore. You know what I mean? We were partying all week long, and uh, school just happened to get in the way. And the only reason we really went to that was because, you know, our moms had pestered the hell out of us at home. You know, if we're laying there with a hangover, it was easier. The teachers would let you sleep as long as you didn't raise hell because we were all the hell raisers. You know, I, I don't know how many classes, as long as I went in the back, sat down, laid my head down, and went to sleep, the teachers wouldn't say anything. They gladly give me a zero for the day, just as long as I wasn't messing with them in class because I had no problem messing with them. You know, it was easy, easy targets. I, what I thought. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's just what we did. We just partied. It wasn't like we were, we had a problem. You know, my growing up, my idea of an alcoholic was always my uncle. I had an uncle. He would, he would go, he'd get his paycheck and you wouldn't see him. And then sometime, Sunday night, Monday, car would pull up to the house, door would open, somebody would roll him out, and he'd have a brown bag, and he'd go crawl underneath. The The house had like a, uh, my grandma's house had like a little, I don't even know what to call it, cellar kind of underneath it. And he would go crawl under there, and he would drink his, drink his bottle until his bottle was gone. Then he'd go home, and then I guess go back to work. That was what an alcoholic was to me. It wasn't what we were doing. We were just hanging out and partying. Right. You know, that's all we're doing, getting girls and listening to Fog at, you know, having a good time, you know. Never really delved into drugs too much. I mean, there was some pot around occasionally. And, I mean, it was definitely in our neighborhood. Back in the 70s, maybe early 80s, there was a big thing. There was these Mickey Mouse LSD tattoos. That It was, it was like this huge thing, you know, the lick and stick, but mm -hmm. it was LSD, you know. And uh, I remember I came... I got off the bus one day and I came down and there's all these weird looking cars parked all over the street with guys in suits in them. And they're just sitting in these cars and we're all going, these people don't live here. They're, we knew our neighborhood, you know, right. it was our hood. You know? And these people aren't supposed to be here. And then just before I hit the end of my driveway, man, they all slapped the little flashy lights up on the thing and took off down the street and surrounded this house and started pulling people out. And it was the biggest bust for those LSD tattoos in the you know in the in the Midwest anyways at the time it was some big the guy's dad was a truck driver and he was doing the moving it around the country and stuff like that and it was this big thing so it was there right. just you know arms reach but it, we just wanted to drink and party you know it wasn't until later that drugs came in yeah so I mean it was around I I know 
shortly after hitting high school, I hit a point in my drinking to where uh, I, I didn't drink well. I'll just put it that way. I was the guy who I was smashed on New Year's Eve. I was the guy that would, if you're having a party, I'm going to come over. I'm going to help you tap the keg. We'll get everything ready. I just wanted to start drinking first. You know what I mean? And by 10 o'clock, I'm smashed laying in a mud puddle out back. You know what I mean? Barfing all over myself. That was me. I was that guy. I had this vision of what having a good buzz was. And I always set out to hit a certain point in my drinking and just park it where I was smooth and cool and it looked like a, a Budweiser ad. I had this vision in my head, you know, that I at some point I'd be able to attain that cool and smooth, you know, and just have my beer and talk to the ladies and stuff like that. But every single time I would just blow right by it and be sloppy and break stuff at people's houses or go break into a house or go get arrested doing something. I, I was just really bad at it, but I kept doing it because you know, I, I couldn't stop. Joe, did, did you ever have any kind of uh, idea that you were practicing like escapism by drinking? Did you at that age? Did you? Well, of course, that's exactly what we wanted. To, that was our goal. Yeah, to escape. we our subdivision was in the middle of a freaking cornfield in the middle of nowhere. We had nothing to do, and all we wanted to do was be somewhere else, be a little cooler, be a little smoother, and have fun. That's mm. all we wanted to do. Of course, that's exactly what we wanted was okay. to escape. Yeah, you know. Half of us were getting the shit beat out of us at home by our parents. Not me specifically, you know, but it was the age of, you know, you get in trouble, you get your ass beat with a belt. You know, I mean, it was, it, things were rough in certain homes. Yeah. You know, I won't say mine specifically, but um, yeah, all, all, we were a family. You know, I'm still super, super, super close with a lot of those people that I grew up with. We were a family, have no doubt. You know, um, they're, they're some of the dearest people in my life. Some of them still party and do stuff like that. Some don't, some people have grown up and gone on to other things. And then we've lost a lot. You know, there's, there's a lot of us that, uh, have gone away for a really long time. And a lot of us that, uh, aren't, they're dead, you know, because of the lifestyle we led, you know? Yeah. yeah so absolutely. Escapism was the goal. During so, that time, did your, did your parents know what was going on? Did they know how you were acting outside of the house and stuff like that? Or were you able to kind of keep that to yourself for the most part? Um, it would depend on what, what age frame, you know, they, of course, at some point when the old man has to come bail you out of jail right. and you're smashed, you know, I mean, they know at that point, uh, my mom is the great enabler. She, she's always been my biggest fan, you know, and that comes from, well, I'll answer your question for my mom knew my mom knew she did my laundry. She, she was the one, my mom was a stay at home mom. If, if if you guys are familiar with uh, All in the Family, the Edith Bunker, mm -hmm. that was my mom with a little less screechy voice. That was my mom. <laughs> she just loved everybody. She was known in the neighborhood as mom. On Saturday mornings before we started partying stuff, when we were younger, everybody came to my house. My mom would feed everybody. We'd watch Saturday morning cartoons. She was that lady. And she knew. I mean, I can remember one time, I don't know what I did the night before, but I woke up. My my pants were down around my ankle. I had I guess I had sat down on the edge of the bed. I lived in my mom and dad's basement. I sat down in the, the edge of the bed, pulled my pants down, and I guess passed out. And that's where I was at. I was getting ready to get in bed, but I just I passed out. And I woke up to my mom going, Joe, 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 have you been drinking? No, no, hell. And I'm sure I stunk to high heaven, you know, just you were not drinking good things, believe me. Uh night train and thunderbird you know wine that never saw a grape you know just some really raunchy stuff 
And uh, I said, I said, no, mom, no, no, I haven't been drinking. She goes, well, then go get your car out of the front yard. And I went out <laughs> and parked sideways in the front yard with the door wide open and beer cans laying out into the yard and everything, you know. So she knew, right? You know, but but she knew that if she, at some point if she told my dad, he would beat the hell out of me, absolutely beat the hell out of me. You know, my my old man wasn't wasn't rough, but his old man was, and he only had the tools he had to deal with. So you hit a certain point, he kicked into anger mode, and uh, you know he was he was gonna he was, you were going to be good, <laughs> you know, otherwise, uh, you're going to be marked up pretty good. But, uh, but yeah, so they knew, they knew. And my old man had to know, you know, and I know he knew later on, later on, you know, but right. we'll get to that. But, um, but yeah, anyway, I'm sorry. Hopefully that answered what you were, yeah, what you were asking. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. So I, Jody, all these memories, stuff coming up. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It's very, uh, it's, it has an organic flow to it. And I, yeah. I, I like to, I, I just, I think it's very beneficial to, to hear. Um, what made you different though than other people? Why were Cause I've seen this with other people myself and, uh, in, in my younger days, my late teens, early twenties, I was, I turned into the same kind of drinker as far as just being a bad drinker. I didn't drink mm-hmm. all the time, but when I did, I would just get so sloshy on things. I, I really had no business drinking, especially in the mm-hmm. amounts that I drank. Um, right. it, you know, back then it was more of the, uh, if I was broke, it was mad dog 2020, which, uh, had done major damage to not just my physical health, but my reputation <laughs> and my, uh, my mental stability. Uh, but you know, also, also some of the, just the, the whiskey, but, um, I, I ended up being that guy kind of it was at the party and I would end up in the in the mud puddle or on my ex-girlfriend's porch with ants crawling all over my face as she's yelling at me from outside you know from the inside of the house and she's like you know get up get up and I was just I couldn't move because the world was spinning anyway uh, what makes what makes a particular person or what made you that kind of a drinker do you have any any insight into that as opposed to other people who could tend to be closer at least to that Budweiser commercial yeah, absolutely. Um, without going too deep into it, you know, I, people give this a bad rap and I know I'm going to get feedback off of this because I, I keep my mouth shut on this on this topic just because of the blowback that people get. Because people people believe it is a willpower issue. And to some degree with certain people, it is. Yes, I chose to take those first drinks, but that's what differentiates people from the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. A problem drinker can have some situation that comes along and along in their life, uh, some big, huge, impactful thing. Uh, wife leaves them, whatever. Okay, I'm quitting, and they never drink again, or they're able to to have a, have a beer with with dinner. You know, absolutely, that's a willpower issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the American Medical Association, at, I, I and I, sorry for not having my facts, but the they're in a particular year, they recognized alcoholism as a disease that has symptoms that it fits all the criteria as being a disease. Now it is, it is, you get the disease. There's, there's a lot of differing opinions on it, whether it's, um, genetic, you know, and there's a lot of proof today that there's some genetic precursors, what they would say Mm -hmm. where certain people are more susceptible. So like if my mom and dad were drunks, full-blown alcoholics and then got pregnant with me that maybe there's a what they call a genetic predisposition that doesn't mean that I'm an alcoholic automatically but that the switch clicks a little faster for me than 
a normal person. Right. Um, I have friends who have very large families and three of the kids in the family, full blown, full blown, no, no, you know, on to heroin, whatever. And then there's, it always seems like there's one kid skips right over them. They can, they can have a beer, do whatever and just function just, just fine. Um, now in layman's terms, what that means, and I, I'll describe it in, in these terms, there was a point in my drinking probably where if I wanted to have one and go home, I could have, after I had that moment, once it hit my lips, once it hit my bloodstream and got in me, there's something that's, that changes, that switches, mm-hmm. and I cannot stop. I will not stop until something stops me. That'll, that may look like I'm having such a good time, you know, and just go until I fall on my face. Or that may look like me sitting in a recliner by myself watching Sports Center at four in the morning getting out and walking to go get another pint because I need to keep going. You know, it, it, it looks so different for different people, you know, and I, I believe that's why it's so easy for people to rationalize not being an alcoholic because there's so many ways to look. I get up and go to work every day, you know, um, so I'm not hurt. That's, that's the, that's the war cry for a newcomer in recovery is, uh, you know, um, well, I, I could still go to work. You know, uh, you know, I'm not hurting anybody. That's the war cry right there. I'm not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. If everybody just leave me alone and let me drink, you know, I'm just having a good time. You know, you know, it's not a good time that after you cross a certain point, you know. Yeah. So, you know, in, in all honesty, Joe, I've known functional crackheads, like people who come to work every day and they smoke crack, like I literally crack cocaine. So it yeah. is, you know, you've heard of that functional addict or, you know, that, uh, functional junkie it, it's that that can be the case and like like you're like you're saying it's uh it kind of gives them that rationale like well, i'm not hurting anybody what's what's the problem with me doing this every year it's, it's paid right it's, and it's my body it's it's my yeah. life right yeah so yeah, yeah and I, I like the distinction that you make there too between um in this case an alcoholic versus like a problem drinker you know and, and i think that's a, that's a very important distinction to make because it does it's it's difficult for people to understand um, that side of things, if if and when they don't they don't live it, you know, it's just like people having another kind of um, a, a mental disorder or something along those lines. It's difficult for people who've never experienced depression to really understand what depression is. They think, well, why don't you just buck up and and get out of bed right. and you know just you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you're being a big baby. And they don't right. understand the all the physical consequences of depression, and, and along with the mental consequences and the change in your worldview and things like that that someone with depression has to overcome. And so there's a difference between episodic depression and, and then uh, you know clinical depression. And, yeah. and so that's kind of the kind of along the same lines as a distinction between a problem drinker and an alcoholic, right? Um, yeah. I, I don't I, I don't classify myself. As an alcoholic, never, never have, but I have been a problem drinker in my life. I, you know, I, I have seen the the negative consequences of, of that happening. I've seen it too. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> you have. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Um, so you mentioned in your bullet points that by the age of 18, you were drinking seven days a week. 
Okay. Um, so, so coming this is basically out of high school by this time, or getting ready to come out of high school. Um, can you take us forward from there? How did, how did life go? What kind of turns did you take from that point on? Sure. Well, I just have to take this, this second to say this real quick before I go on any sure. farther with the, the conversation we've had already. I have to say, I am, in, I am, I'm no way a spokesperson for anything. I am, I'm not a professional on anything. I am purely speaking from my experience and from what I have learned and what I know to be true in my life. Mm-hmm. So before I get blowback from anybody on, you know, who, you know, I, I am not a pro at any of this stuff. I'm just, I know what has worked for me and Good. what I've learned. So right. Good stuff. So, um, you know, just to back up a, a little bit, if I could, mm-hmm. my, uh, I'll just tell this story and it'll, it'll come into later on. Uh, I was 10 years old and my mom got me all cleaned up, put a little suit on me, was squeaking my hair, slicking me down and everything and walking me out to the car. And my dad's there and he's dressed up and she's dressed up and it's middle of the week and dad's not at work. And I'm like, what is happening? What is going on? And, uh, I can remember we were getting ready to get in the car. My mom was holding the door for me and she said, we're going to make him your dad. And I'm like, but he's dad. Why, why would he not be dad? And she's like, no, he's not your real father. We're going, he's going to adopt you today. Oh, okay. So this is at 10, you know, and I started drinking at 13, you know, was when I took that, when I had that moment, you know, 12 or 13 around there. Um, so that just added to the fire of, okay, I've got, you guys got questions or answers, please, you know? And they were just like, basically what they told me was your dad, your real father wasn't a really nice guy. Um, he left us when you were three months old and, um, uh, you know, someday when you're old enough, we'll, we'll, we'll tell you more about him. So here I'm 10 years old and I'm like, my whole world has just been turned upside down. I'm like, what's going on? You know? So I don't know if that added to, (laughs) <laughs> that impact that happened at age 13. Right. But I definitely, I asked moving forward from that. I asked a lot of questions when I could get mom alone and get her to talk about it. Um, and what I came away with, I, I, what I carried with me was I hate the man. And if I ever find him, I'm going to kill him. That's, that's just what it is for what he did to me and my family. I, um, yeah, that's what, that's, what's going to happen. So that was always back here, you know, and I, you know, so moving us up to 18. Yeah. I was supposed to graduate in 88 telling my age here. I was supposed to graduate in 88 and there was no way that was happening. So then we've got the struggles at home, you know, cause dad wants me to get an education, you know, and I want nothing to do with education I'm getting everything I want on the streets. I'm, I'm fine. Um, you know, and they were letting me live in their home. <laughs> you know what I mean? My mom, if, if I, if I took my socks off before they hit the ground, she had them picked up and in the laundry, every meal was laid out beautifully. My mom's amazing cook, amazing Southern cook. Oh, um, <laughs> it, it's a surprise. I'm not bigger than I am, but, uh, uh, yeah, I had everything a, a young alcoholic could want a codependent mother that would do anything. And a father that didn't want to upset mom too much. So he put up with more than way more than he should have, you know? 
so yeah, 18, I'm drinking my, drinking my way out of school. Um, all my friends, not all my friends, some of my friends were graduating. Uh, some of us just really didn't give a shit. You know, we just wanted to party. Yeah. I mean, really it's just the same old, same old up in well into the twenties, you know, um, I didn't get my first, let's see, I didn't get my driver's license until 19 strategically. Um, because I knew I, my, my one of my dearest friends who, uh, I won't say who he is. One of my dearest friends, uh, his dad bought him a car, a, an old satellite or some badass car. Um, but he wasn't 16 yet and he couldn't drive it until he was 16. Well, we all went out and got smashed and he went and stole the keys and went and drove it. So he got a DWI before he ever even had his license. So he Jesus. lost it before he ever got it, you know, and that's, you know, that's just what we did. So I, I saw that and I'm like, nah, I'm not, I, everybody else has got cars. They're going to the same parties I am. So I'll go as long as I can. I just didn't get my license because I knew I would, I knew I'd either wreck and die or get a DWI, you know? And, uh, that didn't change until, you know, you're dating girls and they want you to have a car, you know what I mean? So it's like, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> you know, and plus the old man at home, he's like, you got to get a job, you know? And, uh, you know, 18 years old, mom giving you $20 allowance for the week is kind of weird. And, uh, it doesn't take much booze, you know, <laughs> but so, yeah, I mean, that's really at 18, between 18 and probably 21, it was just party. That's, that's all it was. And, uh, stay away from home as much as I could. And they were kind of happy about that, you know, because I wasn't bringing trouble home. You mentioned mad dog 2020. Uh, the first time I ever drank mad dog 2020, Okay, I'll put it this way. The first time I ever drank a whole bottle by myself, it was grape, of course, of course. messy. And uh, I, I can remember we were in the woods partying. I finished the last drop of the Mad Dog 2020. I threw it down. It was like something out of Beavis and Butthead. I went, what? <laughs> and so my buddies, good friends they are, they got one guy got under one arm and one guy got under another arm. And they decided the best thing for me was to take me home. So they took me home and instead of just laying me under a bush or throwing me on the back porch or something like that and let me sleep it off, they decided the best thing to do would be to open the front door and toss me into the living room. <laughs> so I didn't know that my family was coming into town to visit. So my sister and her family there and my mom and dad are all sitting in the living room and I, they just threw me into the living room and I landed in the middle of the floor and their, their mouths were open, you know, and I'm <laughs> Purple barf all over me and mud. <laughs> and I was like, "What's up?" <laughs> Just went down to my bedroom and I could see my dad. I can still see his eyes looking at me like, "I am gonna fucking kill you," you know. And uh, but anyway, yeah. So that, that's that's just what we did, you know. We just partied. Like I said earlier, I I, I quickly gained a reputation of being the sloppy drunk. I, I had a few stages. It was cool, smooth, and then I got witty. I thought I was really witty, and uh, that meant I'm basically going to degrade the smallest guy in the room, you know, because he can't beat me up. I've been a coward all my life. I, all my buddies were the tough guys, so I'd start it, and then I'd refer them to them, you know, so they could <laughs> <laughs> get the vibe. Your security, you know. basically. Right, right, yeah. No, I've, I had my nose broke way too many times, um, <laughs> you know, because of my mouth, but, uh, but then I ended up, you know, I, I'd end up in a puddle or in a bush or something. But so one of the guys in the neighborhood, we we're at a party one time and he, he said, Hey, you want, you want a line of this? And he gave me 
I was like, sure, I didn't ask questions what it was at the time. You know, I didn't give a shit, really, you know. And uh, so I did this line, and it ripped my face off, and I wasn't drunk anymore. And I was awake for a couple days, and so I didn't have to pass out, and I didn't have to sleep, you know. So um, that was my introduction to speed, and uh, I fell in love. I absolutely fell in love because now I could party. Now I would, I could, I the party didn't have to end. I always hated when, you know, I still wanted to party and everybody else went home. You know, I hated that. That was the worst thing. So I could just keep partying. And if you were done partying, cool. Somebody's partying somewhere, right. you know, and I'll just go where that goes, you know. And that's what I did. So I fell in love with speed and I could drink forever, you know. I started working at a place and it was rampant, you know, working at a, a factory, of course. I, you know. My old man used to bust bust my balls because I never kept a job. I could never hold a job. If I held a job for a year, it was a miracle. Um, you know, they had those point system things for attendance. <laughs> you know, it's usually like 10 points. So the way it usually worked for me is I'd park it right about nine and a half points and then just pray and beg for my job. And I usually would end up somewhere around actually 12 points because they like me. And I've always been a good worker when I was there. I don't know how many times I've sat in, a, in an office with a boss and they say, Joe, we love you when you're here, man. You're amazing, but you're never here. You know, we need somebody that's going to be here that we can depend on. And that's the story of my life. It, that's whether that's in a relationship or any response. I hated, as soon as I committed to it, I'm out. You know, I, I felt the pressure and like I don't want anything to do with it. Um, but yeah, I worked at this place and speed was rampant in there. And, uh, um, we had our own little culture, and the, the circle got a little smaller. By this time, I wasn't hanging so much with the, the neighborhood guys. Um, everybody kind of went off and had their own life. Some of them went in the military. Some of them went to prison. Some of them were dead. Some of them just had families, you know, and realized, whoa, this is crazy. I need to stop this life. So I kind of had this new little crowd, and they were all speed junkies just like me. You know, we just snorted it. We didn't – at that time, none of us were really shooting up or anything. And uh, so that's what we did. And I came to a point, I had a, a fiance, we had a, we had a nice little condo and she had a little daughter and uh, she was my party buddy, man. She could party, man, that girl could drink tequila and snort speed like, like a biker. I mean, she could, she could hold her own, you know, and I was in love and she was beautiful and I was absolutely in love and uh, everything I could ever hope for. And we had a little place and we made our little homestead for what it was worth. And we both worked at the same place and uh, you know, we <laughs> the party never ended at our house you know i feel so sorry i am sure i have some amends to make to my neighbors because it was condos we were right up against somebody and you know sound garden was blaring at four in the morning you know, <laughs> 400 people crammed into a condo you know and who knows what going on and uh it came uh, i don't remember specifically what year this was it was in the early 90s got right close to christmas and I lost my job. We hadn't bought presents yet, especially not for her daughter, you know. And she's like, here you go again, man. You've, you've done this again. You know, she was one of them. She could function. She could live just as hard as I could, but she was at work every single day, um, met all her responsibility. I was in, I was in awe of this woman, you know, but I couldn't, I couldn't freaking hold it together, man. I couldn't hold a job. I couldn't get up and go. Didn't want to. So anyway, I, uh, she said, you got to do something. We got to have Christmas, you know, there's no money. And so I had some friends 
And I went to them and I said, I need to make money and I need to make money fast. And uh, they said, okay. And they put a big pile of powder in front of me and they said, you cut that in half and it'll still be the strongest stuff on the streets. And here's how much money we want you to bring us back. And uh, it's as simple as that. That's what I did. I went home, I cut it in half and started selling it. And I quickly became known for the, the stuff I had. And my house was full all the time. And I made a lot of money really, really quick. And I used a whole bunch, <laughs> a whole, whole, whole bunch because it was free, you know. In that process somewhere, I sold to an undercover twice. And it was a family friend's, this this, uh, this girl that I grew up with, her boyfriend uh, came and bought some from me. And he had already gotten in trouble. And so he, he came and uh, his way of getting out of the trouble, his deal was to get them in my front door. And so they came and they bought after the fact, she called me and she said, Joe, do you not know who you just sold to? And I was like, no, she said, uh, that guy he brought with him was an undercover. And uh, she said, they're coming to get you. And people who aren't <laughs> alcoholic and an addict probably will not be able to understand this, but I didn't change anything I did. I knew it was coming, but I was so comfortable in my chaos and the life that I had that I kept doing what I was doing. So um, I did. And eventually it took them six months. Um, come find out later. Um, they set up uh, surveillance and did all that stuff. And uh, they came and got me one night. Luckily, when they came and got me, I didn't have anything in the house. You know, I had a little bit of pot, but uh, they came and got me. And uh, my first felony, believe it or not, after all of the trouble I had gotten into growing up and everything, that was my first my first felony. And uh, they, they, they wanted to give me two class B's, which each carried seven year sentence. Uh, so because it was my first felony, they gave me the option to go to uh, an outpatient treatment program and get evaluated. So that's what I did. And I went to this guy and this counselor, and I love him to death. When I finally did get sober, this guy, uh, uh I, I, I ended up loving him a lot. He helped me a lot in my early recovery. Uh, I went to him and he had a little test and he, he's super, super sharp guy, super sharp guy, a, a psychiatrist. He's one of the psych guys. Anyway, uh, we did this test and I remember he asked me, he said, so Joe, how much, how often do you drink? And I was a big tournament softball player. And you, I don't know if you guys ever played tournament softball. That's basically you pound beers from eight in the morning till you're done. You know? Right. And so, but I told him, I said, yeah, I play ball. Um, you know, I might have a couple beers when I play ball, but that's about it. That's the, the mantra for all people minimizing their alcoholism. I have a couple beers, you know, just two. Uh, as soon as I said that, he set the paperwork down. He said, I, I can't do anything for you, man. If you're not going to be honest with me, I, there's nothing I can do for you. I need for you to leave. It's like, okay. So I had to, and he reported back to my PO. And um, so they, they got me in this outpatient treatment program, uh, Bridgeway program that was in St. Charles at the time. And I lived down off Ryan Road, in O'Fallon. And, you know, the only thing I changed is I stopped smoking pot because they could pick that up you know, and, and you're in urine drops, everything else. I knew the timing of my PO visits and, and when they didn't really drop us in treatment. So I was still doing a little bit of heroin and uh, doing some speed and coke and, you know, and drinking. And then I would go and I'd sit in these outpatient treatment classes and I started hearing things that were attractive to me. This I remember this one guy, he said, 
he said, for the first time in my life, I can look people in the eye. And uh, I realized, I don't know if you guys have ever been around a tweaker, they don't look you in the eye much. Right. And I, I, the reason I couldn't look people in the eye was because I felt like if, 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 you, if I looked you in the eye, you could see into my eyes and see where I've been and seen the things I've done. And it scared the hell out of me. And so I, I kicked a lot of rocks when I was talking to you, you know. And uh, when he said that, that was attractive to me. So I'd sit in these, group, these groups, and I didn't take part, of course. And I usually was going, ah, these fucking guy, you know, because I wanted to be the cool guy in the room, you know. And But I was starting to hear things. And I, I remember the drive home from St. Charles and the Riverfront to Bryan Road. I'd leave there, and I'd think, I can do this. I can get sober because I, I, at 21, I went into a rehab and, you know, was in there 10 days. Insurance kicked me out. I was, I stayed dry for about three months and somebody handed me a beer and that's all it took. And I was off to the races again, but I digress. So I started going to this treatment thing and, and I drive home, man. And the closer I got to home, I knew there'd be lines on the coffee table and rum and booze in the fridge. And I'd have myself talked out of it by the time I got home. But that was the first little glimmer of hope. You know what I mean? For at least while I was there, I thought I might be able to do this. You know, I didn't at that time, you know. <laughs> uh, so the, they ended up, we got thrown out of the place we were living in. And we had just got this little trashy, it was horrible, horrible neighborhood. And it's a horrible little de- decrepit little trailer. But it, it's all I could throw together. And I had a job, found another job. And of course, I was at 10 points, bobbing right there. And we weren't supposed to, we were living in my mom and dad's basement. My girlfriend was dealing, dealing drugs or dealing drugs, dealing cards at the casino. Ameristar had just opened up at the time. She was dealing cards at night. So I was watching her daughter. And we weren't supposed to be in the new place yet, but I had the keys. This one night, she went to deal or, it went to went to work, and I asked mom. I said, "Hey, the guys are up at the bowling alley. I'm gonna go up there and have a beer. Can you please get her ready, and then I'll be back to put her in bed." I didn't make it home. Uh, this is my last drunk, and uh, I uh, I went for one beer, and basically the next thing I know, I woke up the next morning on that trailer and my, my girlfriend was standing over the top of me. My fiance, she was standing over the top of me. She said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Do you, why did you do that? And I'm like, I don't know what happened. What the hell happened? And she said that I almost ran over her with my truck. I was running up and down my mom and dad's street, you know, 80, 90 miles an hour. It's just a little neighborhood, you know, and uh, driving through people's yards. And I went in and said, I tore my mom and dad's house apart. And just, um, she said, your, your family's done with you. They really are. And uh, in the back of my head, I didn't think my mom was. So I said, I, I said something about it. Oh, my mom will never turn her back on me. And she said, no, she's done. She's done, honey. It's over. The ride's over. And she, and she turned around to walk away. And she said, I'm done with you too. And uh, she went to walk out the door and, you know, this is that was a Thursday night and this is a Friday morning while well, I'm supposed to be at work, you know. And so she walked out a few minutes later, my work calls and they said, you know, it was my boss. He's like, Joe, I've given you chance after chance after chance. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. All right, man, whatever. You know, I mean, how can this day get any worse? You know, and uh, 
little few minutes later, I had a I had a court date for that day. And my attorney was supposed to postpone, just like he'd been doing, push it off, push it off, push it off. They were wanting to revoke my probation. And uh, he called and he said, you need to get down here now. Your PO is pissed. The judge is pissed. You need to be here now. So I didn't shower, didn't do anything. I hopped in my truck. I drove down to St. Charles, parked illegally, ran inside, went in there. And my 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 PO was wanting to revoke my my probation. She got a, a hearing. My judge was there. My, my attorney was there waiting on me. I rush in. I, I go through the whole thing. They get me up there, ask me a bunch of questions. And man, I was on it. I had answers for everything. It's all a big, they're framing me. It's this big scheme to put Joe in prison and all this stuff. And if they just leave me alone, everything would be fine. You know, and I turned a, a five week treatment program into a year and a half. You know, and uh, I just wasn't doing anything, you know, and they knew it. So they were going to revoke me and go ahead and send me. And uh, so that's what they wanted to do. And I told them, I said, they said, OK, you know, you're they already had the paperwork filled out. They wanted me to go to 120 day Department of Corrections regimented substance treatment abuse program. So shock <laughs> treatment. Yeah. In so I said, nobody even knows I'm here. I can't. Nobody knows I'm here. And uh, so my attorney got it to where they'd, they'd give me till the, I think it was the next Monday or, or Tuesday to turn myself in. They said that I wasn't a risk, so that was fine. Um, so I went home and I started drinking. I went and I sat in that trailer and I started drinking because I needed the escapism. You know, how am I going to get out of this one? You know, and that's, that's what was going. Wheels were turning. How are we going to get out of this one? Um, and I started drinking and the weird thing happened that for the first time in my drinking career, it didn't work. I couldn't get drunk. I had a little buzz, but I could not get drunk. And believe me, I tried. I drank everything I could get my hands on and I could not get drunk. Um, I found out later that that's a common thing for us when we hit the end of the road. It just doesn't work anymore. And uh, I drank right up to it. I had a friend. He took me, turned me in and off I went, you know, and uh you know, there was some, you know, I, I'm not a religious person. I grew up, my grandfather was a minister. My brother's a minister. And uh, my mom read the Bible every single night, she, but she never pushed it on anybody. Um, and honest to God, at that point, I thought that, uh, you know, if there is a God, he don't want nothing to do with me. You know, I've, I've burnt that bridge a long time ago, you know. And uh, um, but I found myself in Fulton. That's the diagnostic center before they sent me off to my treatment camp. And uh, I was sharing a bunk with a guy, and uh, he, uh, we we had to share foot lockers. And every time he'd open his foot locker, man, I'd see his little Bible sitting in there. And uh, something was telling me I need to read that Bible. And I, you know, I, I tried to read the Bible one time when I'd been up. I was up for like six days on speed, you know, and I couldn't sleep. And I was trying to read the Bible. I was trying to find something, you know, to to believe in or whatever. And uh, you know, all the these and thous and hitherto, I could, you know, for six days, you can't read a, a shampoo label, much less the Bible. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, uh, I, something was drawing me to read that book, man. And uh, I said, hey, man, can I read your Bible? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And I picked it up and I I, I sat it in my lap and I, I said, I, I don't know where to start. You know, I, I don't know where to even start on this thing. And so I just fan the book like that and i said wherever it opens is where it's going to open man and that's where i'm going to start 
And when I fanned it, this little card flipped out and it said, new to the Bible, start at John. Okay, let's start at John. So I started at John and I started reading this thing and, and it was hit, man, it was just nailing me. I don't know why, but it was nailing me. There was whatever it was in there. And they talk about the alcoholic insanity, you know, uh, doing the same thing, expecting a different result. And uh, um, I was so insane in a way that for whatever reason, I felt like if I didn't copy this stuff down, write it down, I was going to lose it. I think they printed more than one Bible. You know what I mean? I, they printed a couple of them. So I don't know where that thought came from. But anyway, I started copying. I borrowed some paper and I started copying. And by the time they called Lights Out that night, I copied five books of the Bible into these on this paper. And I was, I was just writing feverishly. And it was just, I was there. I don't know what happened. Well, they called Lights Out. And I set the stuff down. And I said, I don't know who or what you are. I don't know if you're the God of my, my grandfather, the God of my brother, the God of my mother. But I'm tired, I'm scared, and I can't live this way anymore. And that's what I said. And I laid my head on the pillow. And I'd like to be able to tell you that, you know, the next morning the doors flew open. The warden said, good job, Joe. You <laughs> Come on, buddy. He didn't. I was still looking at 15 years, and um, I still had to go off to my camp. But I can tell you this. Um, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was swimming with the current instead of against it. And that's the only way I can describe it. And I went and did my thing. And uh, went to treatment, did the thing. Uh, I got out, came home, came home to the same, came home to mom and dad's basement, right where I left off. Um, girl had left me. She already found a new one of my buddies. She hooked up with one of my buddies, and uh, um, they 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 moved on. And so I started going to some twelve step programs and and trying to get my my feet underneath me and. Uh, yeah, that was 20, it was, I went in, the day I went in and turned myself in and they, they locked me up was uh, September 10th of 1997 and I've been sober since that day. So, sorry for being so worried. No, oh, we love it. It was great. That was great. I've, the, wow, that, that kind of a story though. So that was, how long of a stretch there out of high school, you graduated when again, 88? Never got well. Well, you got out of high school in '88. Is that right? I, I actually went back. I went back two more years trying. I didn't. I didn't get my. One of the things for our release from prison was we had to at least make a start on our GED. And I actually had. I actually had uh, half of my college degree before I got my GED. I don't know if you know you can do that. Nice. You no. can get so many credits before. But I got my GED after I got sober, and then I went on and I got me a, an associate's. So. Perfect. So, and you've been sober ever since '97. '97. Yes, that's that's an awesome run. Congratulations on that. Absolutely. As, especially with the, I mean, the how deep you were in, you know, and it's it's a good thing. I, I've worked in, in uh, with substance abuse a bit. The recidivism is is it's enormous, right? Most people, even after that that ninety day one twenty shock. Um, they go through that. It's they're in that revolving door of the system. They just keep. They, they cannot. They didn't have that moment that you had there in uh, in prison or in, in treatment, wherever you were at there. Um, they didn't have that moment where they they reached out and said that something's got to change. And even if they do, it uh, it's not enough, you know. Yeah. And and so congratulations on that because for whatever reason it worked for you. And so I don't know if it's if you believe in a higher plan or if you believe in you know just the the power of will or whatever it is. 
whatever got you out of that is, is huge. I, I know that you know that for sure. But fast forward into 2003, I got to ask, um, there, there's apparently a cool story behind this. You found your, your real father, right? Yeah. And so let's, let's yeah. move into, into something that's, yeah. Um, so yeah, so my, the father who raised me, the father who adopted me, um, solid dude, man. He, he was, uh, I can't say, excuse me. I can't say enough about him. He, uh, he taught me how to be a man, you know? Um, he, uh, went to work every single day when he met my mom and knew he was going to marry me, marry me. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I, they got married when I was three and, uh, he, uh, I can remember him having a beer in his hand one time. It was, I think it was a Pabst or something in the backyard. We used to live in Oberland before we moved out to O'Fallon. And the way he put it is, you know, I knew I had a family now, and uh, that doesn't fit in with that. So he never, he didn't drink, you know. So it wasn't my mom that never drank. So it didn't come from there, you know what I mean? Mm. So, anyways, uh, he got sick. Uh, he got cancer. Uh, 2000, I believe. And uh, it, it was right about the time I, I think I'd even spoke to my mom. I said, I think I'm ready. I want to find my dad. I think I'm ready. And, uh, but then dad got sick. Uh, you know, there's, there'll be the dad thing's going to get redundant here. Kind of weird. But anyway, uh, so the father who raised me, he got cancer. And I thought that, that you know, I, I need to put that. This That's not important right now. So, um, I got to be by his bedside when he took his last breath and it was one of the most profound experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, and I cherish it. And, uh, I really, after that experience, watching that and going through that, uh, it was the farthest thing from my mind to find my father for whatever reason. And then in recovery, we had this thing for a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Est training or landmark forum or anything like that. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that. I don't think so. Um, there it's, it's, it's borders on culty. Uh, the S program was started in the seventies and the guy had to change it because people were, he, he got basically run out of town because he was, people were getting hurt. People were having breakthroughs in their lives, but there was also people who were getting hurt because it's, it's pretty extreme and, and just mainly in the fact that basically you're you're cooped up for three days on a weekend, and if you're on med- any med- any meds, they tell you to stop them before you come. They don't ask for your doctor's opinion if you're you know you stop them, mm-hmm. and you're stuck in there. So for that reason, you know people shut them down. So they changed the name of it to Landmark Forum. I digress. So that that got real popular amongst some people in recovery circles for a while, and uh, so a friend of mine, a guy I was working with, real good friend of mine. Um, he got into it. So part of being in it is you pull more people in, you know, and and come to find out, you know, there's a real money making aspect business behind driving it, you know? Um, but so we go to this thing I'm sitting in a seminar and there's 120 people in there, a guy in a suit up there leading this thing. There's a microphone on either side of the room. I'm, I've got my, who is now my ex-wife. We were there. And, um, they're talking and this guy gets up and I'm not going to say who he, is. he got a little bit of celebrity in town in St. Louis, but, uh, he got up and he went to the microphone and he started talking about feeling less than all his life. 
And it hear the story I just told you. I'm like, okay. And that's where I heard that term for the first time, feeling less than. So it when he said that, it, oh, that's me. So I started listening. And for whatever reason, I got up and I went to the microphone and I waited for him to finish. And then when he finished, the guy turned to me and uh, I said, I just got to say, he said the word less than and it fit me for whatever reason. And I, I don't I don't know where. And, you know, the guy started guiding the conversation then. And he said, uh, he said, well, when do you, when is your earliest memory of feeling less than? And I said, my earliest, earliest memory is something's wrong. Something's not right. And uh, excuse me. And uh, he goes, well, what do you think that could have caused that? And I said, I don't know, maybe when my dad left. He goes, well, where'd your dad go? I said, he, he left me and my mom when I was when I was three months old. And uh, he goes, well, how's that relationship now? I said, it's not. I've never seen him. I've never heard his voice. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know who he is. I don't know anything. He looked at his watch and he goes, okay, we're getting ready to go on a half hour break. So when you come back from half hour break, I want you to have been in contact with your real father. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's going to happen. I don't even know where to start, you know? So I'm like, all right, whatever, man, I'll give it a shot. And uh, so we broke and my wife and I are walking out the door and she's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I guess I'll call my mom. I don't know. Maybe she's got some insight, you know? So we went and we sat in the car and I called mom. I said, mom, this is going to sound really out of left field and really weird. I'm in a seminar, self-help seminar. And this guy told me I need to find my dad. And she goes, you know, that's the funniest thing. I just got a new phone book today. And I just thumbing through and I happened to see your dad's sister's phone number. Isn't that weird? (laughs) Yeah, that's weird, mom. So she gives me the phone number and I call and I call my my aunt Martha Lynn. uh, And uh, I said, I think you're my aunt. And that's all I said. And she goes, oh, my God, Joey. And she burst into tears. She goes, we have been looking for you your whole life. And at that moment, I realized I wasn't missing a dad. I was missing a whole family of people, you know, and that really the impact of that really hit me later on. Um, She's like she's balling. She goes, let me give you your dad's phone number. And so she gave me my dad's phone number. So I called and I heard his voice for the first time. And excuse me. And uh, it was on a voicemail. It was his voicemail message. And it sounded something. My old man, he was real distinct. He he says, hello, well, apparently I ain't here, so leave a message. You know, and that was was the first thing I heard of my old man, you know. So I left a message. I said, hey, I think I'm your son. Here's my phone number. Please call me. And uh, so we go back in, and they called me up. They said, well, what happened? I said, I left a message on my dad's voicemail. I'm waiting for him to call right now. And the place just erupted. Um, there was a bad side to that because now everybody in there who paid their money to be in that seminar thought I was a plant. Hmm. They thought, uh... set up, you know, so people stopped talking to me. You know what I mean? It was really a weird thing. Wow. But I'm sitting in the seminar with my phone in my pocket and no phones under no conditions. You cannot touch your phone while you're in there. And my phone starts vibrating in my pocket and I know it's my dad. And it's killing me. And I got another two and a half hours to sit in the seminar with knowing that my dad's on this phone right here, you know. So as soon as we got out, man, I flew out the door and I called and I talked to him and come to find out. I didn't find out that night, but I actually met him uh, 
the Father's Day coming up that followed that. I went down and I met him in person for the first time. And, uh, you know, I don't look like many people in my mom's family. And I don't look like many people, obviously, from my step adopted father's family. Um, I met my dad and I met a few other. And then these cousins start walking in the door. Man, there's my hairline. There's my waistline. There's my build. There's everything. And all that less than disappeared. It was just gone, man. You know, it really was. And come to find out, my old man was was just like me. He led the same life I led, you know, just in a different time period and maybe to a little bigger degree. Um, he, was, he was a little more gangster than I was, <laughs> and, uh, a whole lot more. And uh, but he was he was later in life, you know, and he, he uh, but there was a moment when I went and met him, you know, and if you remember, I was going to kill this man, you know, and uh, I'm standing there. We're getting ready to leave after I met him that first time. He's on crutches. Uh, he had real bad rheumatoid arthritis flare-ups and uh, standing there. And he was trying to tell me he was sorry and he was bawling, you know. And I just told him, I, I just said, "There's, there, don't worry about it. We're starting from here, man. And uh, we had an amazing relationship. He got leukemia um, and I passed away a few years ago. And I got to be by, I missed his bedside by maybe a half hour. I was there with him. And, um, you know, if, if you've ever been around somebody when they're going out, there's an in and out process that happens at the very end where they, they come back and then they go, and they come back and they go. And, uh, he had been gone and we were basically just sitting there waiting, you know, hospice was there. We were in, in his place and the whole family was around him. And I, I went outside for something and they called me back in. I said, Joey, 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 he's awake. He wants to talk to you. He wants to talk to you. And I ran up to the bedside. And uh, just to give you an insight into who my old man was, the, he was the funniest motherfucker I, I ever met in my life. He was hilarious. And he, he owned, when he walked into a room, it was his room, period. He owned that room. Uh, and uh, he was everybody's best friend. But anyway, he called me back. And just to give you insight into who he was and the personality he had, I run to his bedside. What is it, Dad? What is it, Dad? I think it's going to be some profound words, you know. He sat up and he looked at me and goes, Joey, I'll whoop your ass, boy. <laughs> and he stopped real big and he laid his head down. And that was the last words he said, you know. And uh, um, it's just an amazing, amazing ride. You know what I mean? That if I firmly believe that both of those instances, watching both those, both my dads go out, that that's the stuff that I would have missed. You know what I mean? I, I'd either be dead. I'd be, I, if I wasn't dead, I'd damn sure be in prison. You know, I, I know that. Um, or, or sit in a recliner drinking myself to death, you know, and not want to be around people. And, and uh, that's the things that I'm truly grateful for, you know, is, uh, moments like that, you know, all this other, the music stuff and all this other stuff, that's just side stuff. It's all the little hidden stuff that nobody really sees that has the impact for me. So, so hopefully that answers your, your thing about moving forward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, Absolutely. Emotional uh, on that stuff, so. Well, if, if you recall, we started this conversation uh, talking about how you were shaped into the guy that you are today, you know, yeah. and you've given us a lot of the background to, you know, uh, illuminate all, all of those things, all the little things, the hidden things in, in the background that other people wouldn't see. They definitely won't see if they just come and see you perform on stage. They see the guy up there that's driven by passion that, you know, uh, a passion for music, definitely, you know, passion for being out there on stage. And, uh, oftentimes, and this is why I love what Colt and I get to do. You know, we get to delve into 
the person behind that that guy up there on stage, man, because right. we just we can't possibly know these things. And yeah. and of course now I'm never gonna look at you the same. I look at you with even <laughs> even <laughs> So, <laughs> no apologies necessary, uh, for sure. No, it's, uh, uh, you, you gotta know when you're looking at people that there's so much more that's driving that person than just what's on the surface. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I mentioned earlier about how, you know, I follow you on social media. Um, every time I get on, I look to see what, what Joe's up to because <laughs> you, you have something positive to say, you know, <laughs> we, what, I, in a, in a world full of so much negativity i i seek those people out there that are genuinely positive i'm not looking for a i'm not looking for a um a speaker of any kind i mean i i listen to some motivational speakers here and there but that's not what i'm after i'm after that genuine someone who's been through some stuff and is now on the other side and coming out in positivity and and i could just i just know i just knew that that's where you were at in your life um, and one of the things that I can tell also, Joe, is that you have a, a certain level of spirituality. Um, and, and so even before I spoke to you today, of course, I, I, that's also gravitated me toward you because I know that you kind of uh, lean toward uh, some Eastern philosophy even. And uh, as do I, I, I'm very interested in mindfulness. I, I practice a little bit of mindfulness myself. Um, I like to read books on like taming the tiger or taming the monkey mind. And uh, even on, on ninjutsu, things like that, because I've, Eastern philosophy to me is more of a, it's a branch of psychology. Um, yeah. just, just as much as it ever would, would be to somebody else a religion. I never practiced that, that religion, of course, but, um, it's, it's absolutely philosophical more than religious. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I even, you know, venture to say it's uh, psychological, you know, it's something that, oh. uh, it, it's tools that a person can use in order to kind of shift their perspective on what they see in life. Um, absolutely. I've just always been gravitated and I, I could tell that you have at least some leanings toward that as well. So if you could, uh, kind of, kind of winding down, but, uh, mm -hmm. ex, ex, kind of encapsulate what it is that, that you, what, what's your goal today? What, what, what is your overarching philosophy? If you have something that you can kind of encapsulate for us, um, into the, the, um, I guess the optimist or the, you know, whatever it is, maybe it's just realist that you consider yourself nowadays. How do you, how do you define the man that is Joe? <laughs> flawed, flawed. Got a long way to go. Um, like I said, I, I I had a lot of Christian upbringing. Um, it was we didn't go to church every Sunday, um, but like I said, my grandfather was a minister. Um, my, my brother's a minister. He's still a minister today. My grandfather's long since passed. My mom still reads the Bible every single night. You know, um, we had this cool thing we did when I was locked up um, because we were separated. Um, I just started journeying again. Like I said, I'd started reading that Bible and stuff. And so at the exact, at 9.15, every single night, my mom and I, we, we would read the same passages. So I knew thousands of miles away she was for me. Her and I were spiritually connected at that moment for that period of time. You know, and this is a cool little thing. Um, after I got sober, I was... I was honored enough that I had a mentor who asked me, he said, are you willing to put aside any preconceived notions about who and what God is good or bad and just let him manifest? And I said, I don't know if I can do that, but I will try. And that's what I did. And I had, that was really hard for me. It was super hard for me because um, I don't want to say there's uh, Christian shaming, 
Um, but I, I felt that I was doing something wrong if I investigated something outside of that. You know, I felt that I would be shamed, maybe not. Maybe, maybe that's more what it was. I felt like if I didn't keep it secret that I was investigating these other things that um, I was being drawn to, absolutely drawn to. Um, so I, I just started, I, I started picking up books, just started, you know, uh, when my mom gave me this one, and this one is a Christian, but it, it's a Max Licato book, and it's called God Came Near. And it was really impactful for me because it talked about uh, Jesus being a human being. And uh, I'll, I'll preface all this by saying I don't identify as a Christian necessarily. You know, I, I, I grab pieces from everything. You know, I, I believe it's all one. I believe it's all connected. It's just people saying it in different ways. I, I truly do. Um, but this book, and it, Max Licato talks about, it, there's one part he talks about, uh, an interview with Mary, I believe, is the way the setup is. And he's talking to Mary about Jesus was a kid. You know, did he get in trouble? Did you have to spank him? You know, what goes on? And it really put it in this term. He was a guy. You know what I mean? And I was like, I never thought of that. You know, I've always seen him. Oh, he's floating on a cloud somewhere. You know? <laughs> but he, it, they even say he became man, you know, and all that comes with it. You know, so he he got angry. He got mad. I'm like, Wow. Okay, cool. He was just a dude. I can look at him like that. And uh, so that kind of opened the door for me. So then I picked up a, a, a book by uh, something. Is it Closer to the Heart by the Dalai Lama? I picked up that book and I started investigating it a little bit. And I just start, you know, some books I'd start them and eh, don't stick and throw them down, pick them up, throw them down. And I picked up this book. It's called Off the Sauce. And it's from somebody who was in recovery. It's a real small book. But the guy kept mentioning this book called The Prophet by Khalil Brown. And um, it's a poem. And I don't know what happened to me when I read that. Um, I've given it to people and it not happened for them. And I've given it to people and it's changed, absolutely changed their life. Um, it changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. It goes through in situations. It's this prophet is a guy, and this 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 he's getting ready to return home, and uh, he's in a seaside village. And these villagers come up to him. He sits on a mountainside, and these villagers come up to him and they ask him, "What of family? What of children? What of marriage? What of money?" And they ask him these questions, and then he gives them these things. He talks to him and tells them what these things really are. And it's some of it's hard to read because it's, it's translated from Lebanese. He was a Lebanese poet. And, uh, but I digress. it changed my life, you know? So I'm starting to move more outside. I'm like, okay, there's all this good stuff out here that I'm not supposed to. It's almost like I was looking at porn. You know what I mean? Cause they're like, I'm not supposed to be looking at this stuff. This is great. <laughs> you know? So I became obsessed with, What's going to be the next one that's going to hit me? What's going to be the next one that's going to hit me? Then somebody introduced me to Emmett Fox's uh, Sermon on the Mount. You know, just so many, just anywhere, you know. And in Sermon on the Mount, he opens that book by saying, it doesn't matter if you believe Jesus was the Son of Man or if you just believe he was a, a, a smart guy. His teachings are very impactful. You know, the, anybody can learn from them. Once again, if you can set aside any preconceived prejudices that you may have, if you can set that aside, the world's an open book, you know. So anyway, uh, you know, I found myself at about 18, 19 years sober. 
uh, believing that I had a God of somewhat, uh, as we say in, a, in in the program, a God of my misunderstanding, <laughs> you know, which is okay. You know, I don't have to know who he is. But I found myself depressed, felt alone, disconnected, didn't feel like the line went to whatever my God was anymore. And I was scared because here I sit, you know, um, 18, 19 years sober. And the thing I firmly believe that it, that that God's the thing that got me sober. I don't I just don't know who or what God is, you know, but I, I know, you know, you can't if you go back to what I just told you guys, all them coincidences that lined up. Everybody turned their back on me in one day. You know, stuff like that don't happen. Cards flying out of box. That don't happen, you know. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, I just started investigating, investigating. And, and I found myself in this one night. I'm at work. I work third shift. I'm a machinist. I got my head in the machine. got my earbuds in. And I'm listening to music, you know. And, and music ain't even cutting it for me anymore. It's not working. I'm like, I got to find something. And so I started looking for podcasts, spiritual podcasts, and just self-help and just whatever. I had no clue where I was going. And I ended up on this one, and uh, he started talking about uh, – he, he, he didn't talk about one particular faith or one particular philosophy. He started talking about all these other ones and how it made who he was. And so that's kind of the track I started down, you know, um, you, there's there's aspects of Buddhism that I, I, I follow, you know, and I, I really I, I meditate. I meditate every day. Um, I try to spend at least 15 minutes quiet. Um, I, I believe we need to turn that off. And uh, if, if there is something up there, whatever it is, universe, creator, life force, whatever you want to call it, if it's going to communicate me, I got to shut my fucking mouth long enough to listen, you know, and that's the way they told me you got two ears and one mouth, you know, you should listen twice as much as you should talk, you know, so um, that shutdown is really important to me. Um, where I'm at now is if I had to boil down my faith, I guess, or my philosophy, my religion, my spirituality is there's two things in life. If you give me a problem, I can boil it down to a fear. I guarantee you. You got a problem, there's fear associated. And it started within a fear of your either within you or somebody else. I believe that there's only two things. There's only two emotions. There's only love or fear. And within our minds and in our hearts, they say they say space abhors a vacuum. So you always got to have something going on. And no two things can occupy the same space at the same time. If I fill myself with love and I'm acting out of love, there's no room for fear. Um, the guys I work with and the people I talk to, um, what when there's fear, you know, and they're talking to me, man, I'm scared about this. I got this going on. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. My go-to is find somebody to go do something for. Go show somebody some love, and that'll disappear. I guarantee you. If you go through all the great religions – all the great faiths, even some of the darker ones, all they're saying, show love. You boil down every one of Jesus's teachings. It's love people, you know. Um, the people who, the people he was healing, you know, he didn't stop and say, okay, fill out this form. I need to know your background. I need to know your history. I need to know all this. He said, no, come here, come here. All right, you're good. Now go. I love you. Take off. 
you know, all of them, Buddha, all of them, they all, it's all love, man. That's all it is, you know, and you can call me a flower child. You can call me whatever you want, you know, but um, my goal in life is to walk through every single day, continually try to look within myself, try to get a little better than I was yesterday. I'm so flawed. I'm so flawed. So, <laughs> you know, when you start looking at yourself, it's like, wow, I got a lot of work to do here, you know, if you, if you're so inclined, but you know, that's just it. Um, I, and that teaching comes a little more from a course in miracles. I don't know if you're familiar with it or heard of it. Um, it usually goes by ACIM just a you know, abbreviation of it, but, uh, a course in miracles. Um, I'm really drawing a lot from that right now. Um, it's a little too Jesus-y for me at times. Um, but yeah, I'm really, that's that, that manifestation, uh, you know, believe if I, if I believe something enough and I put enough energy, positive energy into it, and I just kind of believe it as if it's already happened, I believe that we can manifest things in our lives. You know, we can bring good into our lives. If we put that out, that's what we're going to get back. And, uh, I don't know if you could put that in, boil that down, but that's where I'm at, you know, spiritually, you know, just love is greater than fear. You'll see me post that from time to time. Love is greater than fear. And I, I truly believe that any pains we're having enough love shown that pain will go away. It definitely will. So, wow. so yeah. yeah, very good, man. And, uh, I don't know about a flower child. You don't look like any hippie that I've really <laughs> known in my life, but <laughs> he can buy the suit though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. You make a great Elvis, uh, yeah. Elvis slash Uncle Eddie hybrid with the yeah. Uncle Eddie hat. Joe, if yeah. you, if you would take us out of here, man, by giving us anything, uh, divide the empire, anything else that you want to promote. Where can people find you all? Um, if you got anything, I know you've played your last show of the year last night. Um, yes. But if you got anything coming up that's scheduled or anything that uh, you might want to drop a little hint of, I don't know if you guys are working on anything new or anything like that. Uh, yeah, this is your this your time. Okay, so we've got, like I said before, we're doing three winters, volume one, two, and three. We're all we're we're in the middle of working on three. The, we're doing this one differently. All the others, we finish all seven post production, ready to go, make a record, throw it out, and start promoting it. This one we're doing single by single. Uh, we've got five done and recorded three of those are already out prescriptions coffee burns and visions just released the video for uh not too long ago mm -hmm. visions um we've got two more recorded which we need to go back in and do post-production on and then we've got two more to write so this usually we shut down around thanksgiving and that's writing time and we write till the next year and stuff starts picking up in springtime um you know we won't turn down a good show if it comes up but for the most part we're shut down so that's what we're our downtime right now is looking like um, uh, yeah, so we're going to try to write the two new songs. Uh, we're on all social media, uh, outlets, the new, the three new singles will be up on Spotify and everywhere soon. We're working something out on that because we got a little distribution deal we're working on. We're, we're just going to see how that pans out. Uh, but it'll be out there, I promise. But if not divide the empire.com, you can get all our music there. Um, if you can't afford it, hook, get a hold of me and, if you can't afford a 99 cent song, get a hold of me and we'll work something out. I promise you, we'll put you to work or something at a show or something. <laughs> but uh, um, I've got, you guys are going to get an exclusive. So I've got a, I'm starting a podcast. Okay. 
And it's going to have to do somewhat with what we talked about towards the end. It's not going to be some God thing. It's not going to be a spiritual thing. It's not going to be a self-help thing. But where I'm starting, it's going to be called Crusher Cast. And it's getting ready to start. um, I think we're going to do our first interview here sometime within the next month or so. Um, But it won't be up for a while. But so people, please watch out for that. It'll be on all social medias. I'll promote it all and everything. Uh, It's going to be Crusher Cast, Ordinary People Leading Inspired Lives. So that's that's the direction we're going with it. So that'll be coming up soon. Um, you say yeah, you say we is that just is it just you doing interviews with other people or you have a co-host or what? No, nope, it's going to be me. Okay, uh, I'm going to have a, a behind the scenes few people helping. Okay, uh, and then uh, yeah, I got a few tricks that are coming out. So it's it's going to be you know there's going to be some musicians. It's not going to be super spiritual, but it's I think everybody's going to be able to watch it. They're going to be able to laugh and they're going to be able to maybe cry and be able to walk away feeling a little better and thinking, you know what, if those people do that, I can do it. Mm. So that, that's my goal. So I think they got so the we, perfect guy doing it then. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Way too much faith, but we're going to see how it goes, man. Awesome. That's great. I thank you for the exclusive on that, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it here first, right? Uh, <laughs> that's awesome, man. And I, I agree with Colt though. You're going to put out a fantastic show. Um, well, especially with the the trajectory that you're putting it on the uh, you know the uh, foundation for this show, uh, it's inspiring. You know, and and honestly, we we can't uh, we can't have enough of that in the world, especially in the world we live in, because there's a lot of there's a lot of darkness, a lot of negativity. Um, if we can shed some light at all, then man, we need it. We need a lot of light out here. Want, people just want tools to get by, man. They just want to be happy. That's all they want. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, Joe, I, I can't stop the show without saying I love your T-shirt, man. For the folks that are just <laughs> listening to the audio, you can't see it. but old school. I know you guys got the new ones, man, but I love this old school. That, that's I love fantastic, dude. That's, that's, that's great. You, yeah. you, you wear it well, too. So Joe's got a, an official CEP shirt on when he's talking with us, and that's that's awesome. So I had to give that shout-out to that, man. Thanks for repping, and uh, thanks for coming on, dude. Once again, this has been fantastic. Uh, exceeded my expectations, which I love. And uh, look forward to seeing you out on the scene, man. And, and would love to, to talk again sometime and delve right. into, into whatever. Maybe well, I can get you guys to maybe come on Crusher Cast, maybe. Let's set it up. Yeah, give us a holler. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks again, Joe. Thanks. And we are out. Cool. Thanks again to Joe Burrow. And thank you, CEP listener. Remember that word of mouth is a fantastic thing for us, so don't forget to tell your friends and fam about the great variety you hear right here on the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you consume your podcast to keep the variety coming straight to your ear holes with the automaticity. And we love it when you give us all your love on the socials when you do give us all your love on the socials, so be sure to give us your love on the socials. And be sure to visit the launching pad for all things Cerebral at thecepodcast.com. And of course, if you need to contact us or whatever, you can do that at cerebral at thecepodcast.com. Also, please remember that we now have the official CEP merch at buyjack.com slash CEP. That is B-Y-J-A-C-K dot com slash CEP. So get online and get your CEP gear today. That's all I've got, folks. So until next time, be sure to keep those big, beautiful brains of yours nice and warm out there. See ya.